Welcome to What the Duck, a podcast with real experts talking about real issues in direct spin supply chain. And now, here's your host, Source Day's very own supply chain maven, Sarah Scudder. Thanks for joining me for the What the Duck, another supply chain podcast brought to you by Source Day. I'm your host, Sarah Scudder, and this is the podcast for people working in the direct materials part of supply chain. I'm at Sarah Scudder on LinkedIn and at S Scudder on Twitter. If you are new to the show, make sure to follow this podcast so you don't miss any of our direct spend supply chain content. Today, I'm going to be joined by Corey Boback, and we're going to discuss innovating in the direct spend of your supply chain. If you work for a manufacturer and are struggling to balance environmental, social, and government's legislation and internal customer expectations, then this episode is for you. Corey is new on the leadership team at Inspire 11. Inspire 11 is a consulting firm that helps people better leverage technology to become more innovative. Corey has spent his career leading supply chain direct spend technology programs for manufacturing companies. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Looking forward to the conversation today. So when you and I were prepping for the show, one of the things that you got really excited about was that you are a dad dog. So I am not a dog person at all or a pet person. I'm a neat freak and don't like hair anywhere in my house. So tell me about your doodles. Yeah, so I have allergies, did allergy shots for nine years, so had to have the doodles, mostly because of the shedding, but um, they're the peachy doodles on Instagram. Um, I have a three-year-old mini Bernard, or three-year-old mini golden doodle named Georgia, um, loves fetch, loves just every person that she ever met, and um, loves fetch, but um, Ford is two, he's a mini Bernie doodle, he's the chillest dog I think I've ever met, but he always has something to say at the mailman that's coming by, or any other dogs walking along, um, but yeah, loves being just around people, and they're just such a bright light um, all the time, just moved to a house with a yard for them, so um, yeah, it's always been uh, nice having them around, and uh, couldn't recommend doodles anymore. <laughs> so you also told me that you have a love for cars and wine. Why is that? Well, um, let's start with cars because they obviously kind of started at different ages. Um, so don't get me in trouble there, Sarah. But um, we uh, we kind of growing up always had um, either just the classifieds within the newspaper always out or anything like that. So I would read them from a very young age, just looking at the pictures and always had a big interest in them. Um, and then even moved on to grabbing them from the grocery store where local lots would put in what they had and understood, started to understand the difference between all the different makes, the models, the options, um, and really became enamored with both new and old. Um, and then Growing up, I actually had the a manager from a car dealership live up the street and he would go to the auction and purchase things and I'd be out cutting the grass and it got to a point where I, I was able to pretty much tell him how much he should have paid for something at the auction. Um, so I was like a walking Kelly Blue Book by 12. Um, 
So yeah, I always had a great appreciation for them. And even today, you could still find me in a new car for two hours, pushing all the buttons and trying to understand what it was. And then I actually ended up working for him for a while. Um, back whenever first cars were able to start connecting to cell phones and pairing them with the cars. And that's how I ended up um, working with him throughout college and high school um, to pay for a lot of their college. So yeah, I've always been interested in cars. And then as for wine, that really developed whenever I met my wife. Um, she went to probably the most beautiful place to go to school that you ever could in San Luis Obispo, California. Um, she went to Cal Poly there. You know, 20 minutes to the beach, 45 minutes to some of the best wines in the world. Um, so really after meeting her and really getting to know my father-in-law, who had such a great appreciation for wine as well, I just kind of got the bug. And now I have way too many wine club subscriptions. So um happy if anybody has any recommendations, but also I, I have plenty for anybody to drink. <laughs> So I lived in the wine country, Sonoma County. I actually went to a, a very small school and lived in Petaluma about 20 minutes from Sonoma. Oh, beautiful. So I'm actually heading to Napa. I'm heading to Napa um, at the end of October for my anniversary trip so, and for the first time. But um, yeah, looking forward to it. I think you will be obsessed after you go visit Napa and again, what I call the real wine country. Uh, absolutely. It's um, the last time I wanted to go, we actually had to cancel and pivot to central coast because of the fires. So I'm hoping that I really get the chance to enjoy all the great wineries this time. We're staying in Calistoga and um, also St. Helena. So trying to split time up the mountain this time. Yeah. Calistoga is beautiful. I, I kind of describe it as like a mini France where everything looks perfectly pedicured and maintained. Mm -hmm. And my parents still live in Petaluma and they have multiple wine memberships. Their favorite is El Segacio, which a good friend of mine that good I went to know. college with who decided to pursue a career in wine runs a brand and marketing for them. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I'll have to check them out. So I want to begin with your personal story. How did you get involved with supply chain technology? Yeah. So um, funny enough, I wanted to, growing up, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and then my mom was smart enough to tell me how much college was involved in that. And then that was not necessarily something I was too fond of. Um, so ended up finding um, kind of this happy medium with business and technology, found the major of management information systems, found out that Penn State had a really good program for that. Um, growing up outside of Pittsburgh, it was a really um, natural place for me to end up going. But funny enough, it was new enough of a major that it was kind of lumped in with supply chain, um, which has supply chain is really a phenomenal program at Penn State. And really from there, I was fortunate enough to have a number of different opportunities within the space um, just because of the closeness and proximity with the programs and being invited to all the supply chain career fairs really helped me a lot. Um, and then as I was kind of getting flown out for different final round interviews, as I was kind of nearing some of my decisions that fall of my senior year, um, I really took a look and tried to understand what was 
the company that would allow me to travel the most because that was what I enjoyed. Um, and that's how I ended up getting um, the position with Manhattan Associates was pretty much as after coming down to Atlanta and being able to experience the technology and understanding all the different business problems they were solving for clients around the world. That was really what intrigued me. And that's how I got my career started. Now, why the focus on technology versus going more towards the buyer route? So I, I think the the fun part about supply chain software and supply chain technology in general would be it's always been around for such a long time. But the advancements that we're seeing within the market and especially over the last 10 years, the, the way that it's transformed our abilities from a business perspective to be able to deliver products faster, be able to innovate faster and being able to create and get things into people's hands a lot faster is really, um, I think one of the more pivotal, um, and most interesting pieces within kind of this supply chain technology space. So being a part of that community where we're kind of constantly building, developing and understanding what's next in that space and pushing that forward is really the, the place that I found my home. Now, in supply chain, we've got what I call two major buckets. We've got indirect and direct. Why the focus on direct spend for you? Because I think if you were to kind of ask a lot of people what their normal interpretation is of supply chain and where that starts, I would categorize that a lot with some of their direct spend. And, And really, that's where if you're looking from what where you're going to see the greatest impact to the supply chain is really you got to start at where you believe your supply chain begins. And um, obviously that's a lot of general terms there, but really it's if you're following the money in a certain case and being able to understand where a lot of the influence would come within your supply chain, I think it's a great place to start whenever you're looking at where can you really start to attract, extract greater value out of your supply chain, as well as try to help mitigate some of your problems that might exist with it. Now, you mentioned you had a job at Manhattan Associates. I think that was your first job out of college. That was. And you, a a big part of your job was connecting solutions to ERP systems. Why was this such a big part of your job? Yeah. So within advanced supply chain technology solutions, it's really important to have as much data as possible. And really the way in which I did that for Manhattan Associates was using a product they called Manhattan Integration Framework, which essentially helped translate any of those ERP data points into what the Manhattan system could understand in a way that we could be able to translate that into movements throughout the warehouse, being able to understand how we were going to update the transportation management system to know when they could arrive at a certain dock within a warehouse or being able to pick up a shipment, um, everything all the way to understanding how those um, warehouse workers were moving throughout the warehouse, picking items and being able to track all of that activity and being able to understand how we can make improvements um, towards productivity within the warehouse. So the exchange of information between those advanced supply chain execution tools, as well as being able to understand where that inventory would kind of rest within the warehouse or understanding any of the updates to an order and making sure that those get reflected accurately in the ERP system and then onto the customer was one of the primary um, 
responsibilities that we had is making sure that that data flow was consistent, not only between all the supply chain applications, but as well as making sure that the ERP was accurate. So we work with companies and one of our number one pre-qualifier questions is, are you using an ERP? And if the answer is no, we actually can't even work with a company. So for us, ERP is a must and really, really important. And I'm still surprised when I see people inbounding or getting on calls or reaching out to us and they say they're using QuickBooks. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where it enterprise resource planning tool doesn't necessarily always encapsulate what it is today, where it's kind of expanded into such a pivotal part of running any large enterprise. Um, and it's, it's really something that if you're looking at it from how as a business, I'm going to be able to ha operate and where you can source all of your information and have that one version of the truth. If it doesn't really exist within your ERP, then there's kind of a major problem there to be able to have that governance and that structure in a place that is consistent. Everybody knows where to go to look for things and being able to have all of those financial and um, characteristic components in one place is really pivotal, especially if you're going to optimize and take your supply chain to the next level. So what did you do next after Manhattan Learnings or Manhattan Associates, I should say? So from there, I ended up getting into my most probably deeply, deeply functional um, supply chain role with um, a company called Synchron, where they focus primarily on the aftermarket supply chain or service supply chain. Um, so after an asset's manufactured, the parts that are used to be able to service that item and can kind of continue its life um, was the primary focus of the technology that they were um, operating in. I worked in their inventory management um, tool where I actually um, helped lead one of their largest global deployments um, for a heavy equipment manufacturer. Um, and really, that was kind of where I learned the, the key um, elements around communication as a global supply chain program, where not only was I supporting the technology piece of it, but also I had to support the deployment team that really understood the day-to-day -day operations of the dealer structure, being able to understand how those process would integrate with the technology. And then from there, really being able to understand how we can make each of those individual implementations as successful as possible. Um, so from that perspective, always understanding that the reason why we were doing what we were doing was to impact that service experience, making sure that those items were available for the service event at that service location and always making sure that the customer was kind of front of mind. Um, so having that experience where you're constantly communicating all of the logistics on the back end that had to make that happen, um, always having that customer centric view as we were kind of working throughout supply chain concerns or technical concerns. That was always really interesting and one of the t times that I had learned that really understanding those customer constraints and those implications as, as to what they have on the supply chain was really key and Synchron was kind of the first place that I learned that. What did you, what was your biggest takeaway from working at Synchron in regards to what had the most negative impact on the customer experience? Because I oftentimes think people don't necessarily equate that back to supply chain. They think about it as the person that answers the phone or the email message. But 
supply chain has a big impact on the customer journey and the customer experience. You're, you're exactly right. And within that, it's really being able to put the most information possible into those people's hands that are the, the most equipped to be able to solve some of those customer problems. And in particular, um, a lot of the times we were being able to kind of understand what the certain clients were doing within a particular geography. So for example, if it was in South America, being able to have some of the different mining related equipment, what are the, some of the nuances and seasonal concerns around what, where some of the volume might exist? Because I think one of the more problematic areas within the aftermarket or service supply chain is the volatility and demand where you're seeing a lot of heavy, expensive, slow moving parts. If you're looking at their demand over a 12 month horizon, but really trying to understand when some of those service events are going to occur and kind of drive some of that demand was kind of the next layer that we always need to go to, to be able to understand how some of those contracts were set up, how are their operations set? What are some of the drivers from a causal perspective? So whether that be the hour hours of running time on that machine that are driving some of that behavior were all things that we were kind of considering so that we could kind of have as much information to be able to solve as many problems as possible. So you spent some time at Syncron and now you're starting or you recently, very recently, just started a, a brand new role. So tell me why the change and why you decided to uh, join a new team. Yeah. So um, I had just left Cap Gemini Invent and now I'm with the team here at Inspire 11. Um, and really, I, I got to a place with um, when I was talking to customers and really in the I've now worked for two supply chain technology companies that had products and then worked with Capgemini as, as kind of the management consulting function around a lot of um, supply chain technology companies. And I was having a lot of candid conversations with customers and there was a lot of opportunity that there wasn't necessarily a product that necessarily fit that where there's probably some use cases that overlapped with their problem, but nothing that really targeted their problem and was able to solve some of their day-to-day -day challenges that they have. Um, whether that be supplier visibility into the tier three, tier three plus categories where you're really trying to understand what are those upstream implications to your supply chain, or it could be um, as simple as where are my things? How can I get some of this greater level of visibility? There's obviously a lot of great technology companies out there doing similar things today, but not being able to bring it all into one place and being able to create um, proprietary solutions that really target um, and can be differentiators within the supply chain space for different companies is the main reason why I had switched. Because if everybody's using a lot of the same technology, there's oftentimes very little room for you to be able to be innovative and have that as a strategic advantage. So that was one of the reasons why whenever I was looking at coming to Inspire 11, I would kind of ask some of these probing questions around different customer problems that I had. And I said, is this something that we would build and be able to take to a customer and kind of help solve their problem? And it, a lot, of, and it was always met with an absolutely, which was really the exciting part was being able to create some of those um, solutions in which we can kind of take our clients to the next level in a lot of their different areas of supply chain. So we talked a little bit about at the beginning, your focus and passion for direct spend and direct materials, which is my world and the world that my company lives in as well. 
And you said something when we were prepping for our interview today that really stood out to me. You said you believe the direct spend is the next focus area of supply chain transformation for the next five years. What do you mean by this and why? Sure. So over the next five years, I think what we've seen a lot in not only just from a legislation perspective, but the technology and really the customer motivations are driving this as well. Um, but when you look at areas that are poised for innovation disruption, I think you've been seeing a lot of things around visibility and sustainability and kind of being able to drive a lot of those things is really now coming to a lot of like tactical type things that you can be able to um, implement to be able to improve your supply chain. And I think if you're looking at maybe as a use case, the general data um, protection regulations, the GDPR that happened back in 2016, um, I think that was probably one of the best use cases that I can see where there's kind of a the same fundamentals that were applied to personal privacy um, as you're scrolling the web and everything like that, being able to have those kind of protections in place. Now seeing that kind of push towards the environment and how companies are kind of leveraging their supply chains and using all of these different lots of carbon being emitted, there's pollution, water management, all of the different ESG type of opportunities that you see in the world. I think as the that legislation is pushing towards it, GDPR is a great use case where you see now multi-billion dollar companies handling privacy and cyber type concerns that really didn't have much of a case before 2016 and some of that legislation that was driving it. But now that we have technology and the will kind of of the consumer and now legislation all kind of correlating together to be able to push towards this sustainable future, um, and especially as you're seeing a lot of companies try to move towards net zero, I think all of it's really starting to align where how as I, if I'm in the direct spend space, how am I aggregating all of the data that I need to be able to understand what the impact is of everything I'm bringing into my organization. And that's where I think it's really going to be a struggle for a lot of companies if you're not investing in the data, the technology, to be able to have that clear line as to what is the true impact that your supply chain and your organization is having on the environment. And it's really one of the key things that I think a lot of people have top of mind if you're looking at just ESG in general as an opportunity. What does ESG stand for? So E being environmental, S being social, and then G is for corporate governance. Um, and did you want me to dive in a little bit more? Or did you want to follow up with another? Yeah, no, let's let's dive in a little bit. Not everyone, I think, knows what ESG stands for, but also let, let's explain a little bit about how this impacts direct spend and supply chain in general. Okay. Um, so if you're thinking from an... Let me... Sorry. So for environmental, social, and corporate governance... A lot of the times when you're thinking of how that impacts direct spend, it's the aggregation of 
the supplier activity. So your supplier, supplier, and their supplier, and the, and so on is really the culmination of a lot of different supply chain activities and a lot of different carbon being emitted. All of those contributing elements to the impacts on the environment is really how I think you can correlate a lot of those things. Because if direct spend is the top of your supply chain, that's where you're kind of being able to gather all of those data sources as to how it came to you, how it's being made, whether it was fair trade, making sure that everything that you're bringing in your door kind of has that um, impact associated with it. And along with kind of your supplier agreements and how those shape the way that you're bringing things into your organization is really pivotal as to how you're going to be able to monitor and accurately depict what the true cost is from either a carbon perspective or even really a financial perspective as to how you're able to kind of move those items throughout your supply chain and your organization. So I would argue that we're in a recession now and it's going to get worse. During a recession, does ESG become less important for companies? I think that if you're looking at ESG as a moment in time, I think that's a lot of the wrong ways of looking at it. Um, when I think about ESG, you, you really need to break it up into the environmental impact, obviously, which is pretty apparent, right? With the with pollution or water management, any of those um, key elements that drive to environmental impact. Um, the one that I don't think gets enough focus on is the social aspect, which really that's all of the people and relationships that you have within your organization. Um, so regardless of what the economic climate is, you're going to have that social impact within your organization regardless. I know when a lot of people think of the social component of it, there's a lot of um, gender and diversity, equity, inclusion that are driving a lot of the narrative within that space. But really, if I'm an organization, I really need to care about my employees and my customers are kind of the two places. Obviously, that needs to be within an equi equitable and safe space. But when you're looking at some of the hiring concerns that people have where you don't necessarily have the capacity to meet some of your demand, um, making sure you're able to retain that top talent as you've invested in them and being able to get them to a place where they're positively impacting your organization on a day-to-day -day basis. That's what I would encapsulate as the so social piece of ESG, right? Is making sure that you're able to have a place that not only your customers want to continue to buy from, but your employees want to continue to work for is really the, the way that I would look at that from a strategy perspective. Um, and then the governance is really all of the rules and regulations that kind of help you adhere to both the environmental and the social piece. So as you're looking at the ways of running your business, governance can mean a lot of things, whether that be master data management um, and the governance around how you leverage your data and what are some of the key areas in which you could be able to improve, um, whether that be, let's say, final financial, for example, making sure that you have the governance in place that not everyone has access to financial accounts. There's an approval process. There's a record and an audit trail associated with it. So governance is really the processes and procedures that help you operate your business. So if you're looking at ESG more as a strategy playbook or a framework in which you could be able to set up your operations. I think there's a not necessarily a 
financial tie to it, but it's more as you're laying the foundation for your organization's future. It's a way to be able to make sure that you're not only positively impacting the environment, the people you serve and um, the people that help you serve them, but also the opportunity to help from a governance perspective, making sure that you have all the right policies and procedures in place to be able to kind of carry out that next level of success. So I have a lot of friends that work at companies that don't have an ESG program set up yet. How does somebody go about getting started? What are the first one or two things that are really, really important if somebody's thinking about doing this? And I think it's important that this is not something that just happens overnight, right? This is a long-term strategy and a long-term play. I would be remiss if I didn't say I and Inspire 11 could help you with that. But um, I think the key there would be that having a very human centric approach to the way that you're thinking about your organization, whether that be from how are my employees going to be kind of excited from an engagement perspective to continue to deliver on the mission of our organization? Um, or how are we going to continue to retain our customer as there's continually disruption within a whole bunch of different industries today? Um, but also I think some of the first steps are really just where are you at today, right? Being able to monitor all of those different processes and procedures that help your organization operate is a really good way to understand where am I today and how do I get to execute on this long-term strategy? So doing some of those current state evaluations is something that we do a tremendous amount for clients, but also it's one of those things that internally or as a leadership team that you can really try to better understand your business so that you can kind of pair that not only with the financial elements that support your business, but the processes and procedures that can kind of help enable that next level of growth or that kind of next level of security as you're moving um, into this kind of economic climate that's a lot more uncertain. So one of the other things I want to make sure we get to today is talking about customer expectations. So when we were prepping for our interview, you mentioned that customer expectations are driving a lot of innovation. What do you mean by this? Um, That is a great question, because I think the best way that I can kind of articulate this is I was recently reading about transitional technologies. Um, And the best way to think about a, a transitional technology, for example, is think about how we were paying for things over the last 50 years. We first went from cash to then being able to kind of have a debit card that you're able to balance through a checkbook. And then you went to debit and credit cards you were sliding. And then you went to the chips. And now you're moving to contactless payment. So if you're looking at those transitional periods in which that technology had adapted to be able to enable that functionality, for example, I think it's kind of crazy now when I think a couple of years ago when I thought the metal card that I had was kind of a point of luxury. And now I see everyone putting their phones up to go pay for things. And I just look ridiculous with all of this metal in my, in my pocket. Or for their watches. Yeah, exactly. With your watches there, I've even seen some like different wristbands and stuff like that, where there's like different designers doing things. So it's really an interesting space now where you have this kind of next level of technology that's kind of enabling these solutions that we didn't even know that we needed to our problems. And now when you see kind of growing frustration with why hasn't anybody fixed that supply chain thing yet? Why hasn't anyone, why, how am I able to put an air tag in my luggage, but the airline doesn't know where my bag is and all of those technologies of those um, 
that really aren't solving a lot of the problems that are at the forefront of a lot of consumers' minds, I think is driving a lot of the frustration that and really driving a lot of their buying decisions. Where if you're looking at kind of making some of those purchases, how does this help solve some of the problems that I have? How does this make my life easier? And it was kind of like a novelty um, to think maybe 10 years ago to have two-day shipping. But now you have customers now expecting same-day shipping through um, a lot of the last mile providers and those or two or four things. hours shipping from Amazon. Exactly. So as as kind of people are providing solutions that aren't necessarily problems and you see a lot of other problems continue to exist, I think you're going to see a lot of that buying behavior continue to support any of those ways that I can help mitigate some of the problems that I have because I have enough of them today. So what are the ways that you can kind of solve my problem problems and kind of think of that as to how you should really be approaching your customers. So a lot of our listeners work in manufacturing. For someone working in the manufacturing space, wanting to get more creative and innovative with their direct spend, where should somebody start? I think one of the best things that you can do for yourself is look at your competitors and really try to understand what's the difference between what you're doing today and what you could be doing tomorrow as a differentiator, not only for your customers, but for either the way that you're operating your business today to be able to hit that next level of efficiency. Um, and really that's one of the things that I enjoy most about my job is digging into those solutions and problems. Um, but really if you're looking at, um, things from a technology perspective or your relationship perspective or experience with the way that you're operating today, I would really take a hard look at the ways in which you're driving a lot of those activities and thinking about where, where how can I do this differently? How, what is the next level that I need to get to, to be able to be able to hit that next productivity goal or that next milestone within some of those different strategies that we're setting out either from an ESG perspective or from a monetary perspective. And I think a little bit more of a tactical one is um, being able to use some of the different data science elements that exist today, either building data engines that can kind of leverage all of the data that you have within your organization to help empower some of those better decisions and really giving more information to people to help inform better decisions. And if you kind of take that approach to the way that you're thinking about your business, I think you're going to be able to kind of hit those next levels of, of growth that you're expecting. One of the things that I hear supplier managers complain or, or talk about a lot is that they're feel like they're on fire every single day. And they don't have time to focus on being creative and innovative. Why is this? It's pretty simple. Um, they've never had this number of fires. And I don't think it's ever been to this volume either. Um, so in addition to that, really adding capacity a lot of the times isn't solving your problem, right? Because the technology is not improving. The data is not improving. The process is improving. To be able to help kind of look at things from a perspective of how do I kind of not only just extinguish my current fires, but how do I prevent them from starting in the first place? And really, if you're um, looking at those kind of prevention type efforts, I think one of those things that you really need to focus on is um, 
and especially that you'll see a lot of companies be able to do over the next couple of years is start owning more of their supply chain. Um, you're kind of seeing that with Apple today, being able to make their own chips so they don't really have their chip shortage because they're responsible for de- developing one of their key components. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that from larger organizations where if you're a supplier that's continually disappointing some of your customers because you're not able to get certain things together, I'd really start investing in looking at how your supply chain up upstream can be able to help Im- impact and be able to deliver for your customers because that customers not only going to be disappointed for so long before they're starting to find solutions to their own problem. So you did work for a major American airline and you have your own fire story. So I'd like to have you share this. Yeah. So a lot of the aerospace and defense um, space today really is continually fed with met with a lot of force majeures and there's really a lot of suppliers today where you're not necessarily even able to incentivize the right behavior through your supplier agreements. And um, I think that's one thing that if you were to kind of be able to add a strategy element to the way that you're handling supplier management, um, it's being able to try to incentivize the behavior you want to see from those suppliers, right? So being able to kind of either provide kind of escalation causes where you hit this certain um, fill rate for for me, this is kind of an added bonus that you can be able to achieve and kind of incentivizing some of those productivity gains that you can be able to have and meet some of those expectations that you have um, to be able to capitalize on your demand. Um, But unfortunately, within the airline space, that that fire is still burning bright. There's a lot of... um, MROs, which are the maintenance repair or, um, uh, sorry, let me overhaul. Sorry. <laughs> maintenance repair or overhaul organizations that are the ones that really kind of have to come in, look at, a, at an asset that goes onto an aircraft and be able to understand whether it can be repaired, whether that be a landing gear or an engine component and being able to kind of decipher through that and have that really certified and technically um, advanced talent that can be able to evaluate all of those different elements and pull all of those um, potential solutions together and being able to execute on either a repair or an overhaul is taking time and being able to have all of those um, experienced and key people in those places to be able to fill a lot of those orders just went away with what has happened over the last couple of years with COVID. So I think it, as you're kind of looking at ways to be able to solve some of those problems, you're, you've seen a lot of progress with airlines recently, but especially as we head into the holiday season travel, I, I would expect to see more because you really have a lot of airlines that have more flights than they did in 2019 or um, heading into 2020, but their staffing levels aren't even at 2019 levels, but they're doing more flights. So you're you're seeing a lot of different um, areas of churn where you have aircraft that are kind of being stretched um, from a maintenance perspective to be able to make sure that you can kind of service all of that demand, but also do it safely. So that's where I think a lot of those cancellations and stuff come from a lot of cases where pilots refuse aircrafts and certain things like that. So it's one of those things that as you have a dead aircraft that is now sitting there, there's got to be a another aircraft that brings the part to that aircraft. So it's kind of a compounding effect that you see in a lot of cases where it, unless if you kind of start, start solving that 
supplier problem where you're having all of those um, parts available to be able to do the service when you can really kind of creates a compounding issue the more and more that suppliers wait to be able to service some of that demand that they have. If people want to check you out and connect with you or follow what you're up to, where do you want to send them? LinkedIn.com slash Corey Bobeck. Um, and I would be happy to help you with any of your direct spend or supply chain related issues. Thanks for discussing innovating in the direct spend of your supply chain with us today, Corey. If you missed anything, you can check out the show notes. You can find us by typing in What the Duck, another supply chain podcast right into Google. Don't forget the another supply chain podcast part. It's important to have that in your search for our recordings and videos to appear. If you are new to the show, make sure to follow this podcast so you don't miss any of our direct spend supply chain content. I'm at Sarah Scudder on LinkedIn and at S Scudder on Twitter. This brings us to the end of another episode of What the Duck, Another Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Scudder, and we'll be back next week.